Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. A couple of readings for you this morning. The first is from a book called The Tao is Silent by Raymond M. Smullyan. And it's the first chapter, and it's uh, called The uh, Chinese Philosophy in a Nutshell. Yes, he was an American mathematician. He's passed on now. But uh, uh, it's a fun look at, a Western look at uh, Taoism. He writes this. A mathematician friend of mine recently told me of a mathematician friend of his who every day takes a nap. Now, I never take naps, but I often fall asleep while reading, which is a very, different, very different from deliberately taking a nap. I am far more like my dogs Peekaboo, Pikachu, and Trixie than like my mathematician friend once removed. These dogs never take naps, they merely fall asleep. They fall asleep wherever and whenever they choose, which incidentally is most of the time. Thus, these dogs are true sages. I think this is all that Chinese philosophy is really about. The rest is mere elaboration. If you can learn to fall asleep without taking a nap, then you too will become a sage. But if you can't, you will find it not as easy as you might think. It takes discipline, but discipline in the Eastern, not the Western style. Eastern discipline enables you to fall asleep rather than take a nap. Western discipline has you do the reverse. Eastern discipline trains you to allow yourself to sleep when you're sleepy. Western disciple discipline teaches you to force yourself to sleep whether you're sleepy or not. Had I been Lao Tse, the writer of the Tao Te Ching, I would have added the following maxim, which I think is the quintessence of Taoist philosophy. The sage falls asleep not because he ought to, nor even because he wants to, but because he is sleepy. Taoist wisdom. <laughs> Yes, and I'm going to encourage you to do that, yes. And then a little reading today from SciPost.org. And the title of the article says it all, New Study Links Intrinsic Religious Motivation to Higher Level Patterns of Thought. Quote, new research provides evidence that specific forms of religious motivation are associated with higher level patterns of thought. The findings, which appear in the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion, yes, there is one, right? You knew it. Shed light on the cognitive underpinnings of the relationship between religion and meaning in life. The main takeaway from this study is that people who are motivated to pursue religion or spirituality, or philosophy, I would quickly add, and integrate it fully into their life, while finding it contributing to what they experience, tend to think in more meaningful ways. End quote. A couple of quotes to think about during your holiday. Because, yeah, it's that Memorial Day weekend. It's the traditional beginning of summer here in the United States. 
We know it's here for no other reason than, oh, you know, for the past two weeks you've been getting sale ads in the mail, right? And uh, you've been getting barbecue grills and ads for anything that can be barbecued. Since we're going into that season of hammocks and swatting mosquitoes, I thought I would reflect on this idea of naps. Now, I have to quickly say that Dr. Raymond M. Smullyan's take on Taoism is idiosyncratic at best, but I do love his book. He, he wasn't a scholar of Taoism, but I think in his quirkiness and his mathematical mind, he did get at some important truths about Taoism. It's a truth about chilling out, right? Really chilling out, not merely telling ourselves to chill out, which is different, right? I gotta go to sleep, I gotta go to sleep. That's what I wanna reflect on today as we enter this most, I guess uh, we'll call it fleeting and ethereal seasons. Uh, as Shakespeare's, uh, Shakespeare pointed out, Summer's lease hath all too short a date. And I think if he lived in Minnesota, he would have written, Summer's lease is a sublet. <laughs> What's the number one thing that might disturb your napping this summer? Hmm, politics, State of the Union, anything in the news, right? Well, that's why I shared the second reading with you. New research says that cognitive underpinnings of the relationship between religion and the meaning of life. So religion and meaning. Putting together what you, your values are with what you actually do. Yeah, I know it sounds strange, but most of us don't do that most of the time. I hasten to add that philosophy and meaning works just as well as religion and meaning. Uh, because that it's all about integrating those values, those abstract values that we have, those ethics that kind of float abstractly up here, putting that together with what we actually do. Most of us, of course, would like to think that we think in more meaningful ways sometimes, and the way to do that is to integrate that philosophy or religion or spirituality. It's what anchors you to in your concept of virtue. And yeah, that's an old, old philosophical term, but it's not a bad one. Virtue and living a good life. Integrating that more abstract set of meanings into how you go through the day. Like a proper diet, it is good for you. It says so in Sipos, so it must be true. That's the main focus of humanism, I would argue, creating an integrated life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, and uh, to use that good old-fashioned philosophical term, a life of virtue, meaning, purpose, and virtue. This was underlined for me recently. I was reading an old book, and you know, one of the things about me being sort of a humanist uh, known around, is I get books in the mail that say, oh, I don't need this in my library anymore. You know, so this, uh, but it's about humanism. So you, I guess you want to read it. So I got a book called The Genesis of the Humanist Manifesto. And it was written by Edwin H. Wilson. And he's talking about the first manifesto, the 1933 Humanist Manifesto. And Wilson is not much known today, but he was a Unitarian minister. And the first um, editor of the Humanist magazine that is now the AHA, the American Humanist Association magazine. 
Now, something I had not known was that that magazine not only published the Humanist Manifesto back in 1933, but also in the same edition, they published letters from those who refused to sign. Why did you refuse to sign? And it's an amazing list of, of reasons not to sign the Humanist Manifesto. On the one hand, there's this attempt to formulate the basic tenets of humanism. No one really knew what it was in 1933, so they were going to try to say, this is the basic list. We kind of think these things. It's a, a range of reflections. Uh, but also we get these critiques of, you know, this just won't work for me. Now, there's two overarching reasons for not signing the manifesto as I was reading these. The first was the discomfort of many with blatant agnosticism and atheism. You're just going too far out there uh, being that blatantly uh, anti-God, basically. Uh, the sixth point does read, we are convinced that the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and several varieties of new thought, what nowadays we call new age, right? Uh, so that was the sixth, and a lot of, a lot of uh, critics said, we can't do that. Many humanists at the time thought that the statement precluded discussion about theism and deism, which frankly, yeah, it has uh, sort of done that over time, and it, notice that it's still a big argument among humanists. Do you have to be an atheist agnostic to be one? Well, of course not. Well, of course, you, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Well, guess what? That was a hot topic in 1933. John Dietrich, uh, the senior minister here, did sign that manifesto in 1933, famously. And our next minister, Ray Bragg, also signed it. As a matter of fact, he wrote most of it. Uh, and, but both of them always rejected the label of atheist. And at the end of his life, John Dietrich, as we know, wrote a, a long treatise about how he missed the idea of theism because he always, he always thought of it scientifically instead of somehow about art and nature, the world. And he thought, you know, maybe I overstepped the boundaries on that toward the end of his life, long after he was at FUS. Historically, FUS has always had atheists, agnostics, uh, apatheists, uh, which is a term I hadn't even heard before I got here, but yeah, don't know, don't care, right? And, and pantheists, we have a lot of people who think that nature is God, and that kind of thing. We've always been very heretical in that uh, kind of thing, and I always say, yeah, you know, yes, atheists have partners, so, you know, they, they need to be comfortable here, too. It's one of the things I, I always say. The other point is a bit more abstract, but very, very important, I think. That is that many self-identified humanists in 1933 refused to, join, uh, to sign the manifesto because they insisted that humanism is not a theory or a concept, but a way of living. Not a theory, not a concept, a way of living. Therefore, the meaning of being humanist is only understandable, they argued, by living as a humanist or getting to know someone who's living as a humanist. You can't read about it, you have to watch or experience. So for example, Harold Bushman, who trained as a Unitarian minister, he later became an ethical culture leader, much like our own Jay Hooper. He wrote this by way of explanation for why he could not sign the manifesto. First of all, he said, it's a creed. Now, you all know that Unitarian ministers 
cannot ever, ever take anything that's a creed, like, you know, run. No, 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 I can't sign on to that. Um, no, uh, that, that's, that's too, too blatant. I don't want to think about that a little bit. Anyway, he said, this creed does not approximate my individual construction of my experience. There's the essence of it. It doesn't approximate my individual construction of my experience. I simply do not recognize myself in the manifesto. Then he ends his letter saying this, I am not yet convinced that the doom of liberalism is sealed. Until I am, let me refrain from signing the manifesto. And so, yes, he thought that if we publish this thing about humanism, and yes, it was a democratic socialist uh, claim about redistributing wealth and this, this kind of thing about how production wasn't working because it was the Great Depression, of course. Um, and he said, no, you know, I, I don't think we're done here. And of course, that's right before the New Deal. So I guess we weren't. Uh, Max C. Otto, a philosophy professor, refused to sign, saying that humanism could not be sold. And he was seeing the manifesto as, you know, a tide advertisement kind of thing. Rather, he thought it must be attained by people. You got to work for it and live into it. He ended his letter with a simple phrase, why advertise? Now, I hasten to add that the 1930s were a time of prejudice here in the U.S., to say the least, even among liberals, and yes, to my knowledge, no women or people of color were asked to sign the manifesto. It stayed within a very narrow band of trained philosophers and theologians and Unitarian ministers. Had they been asked, I suspect that these two general concerns would have been further examined. They have, it's safe to say, been the flies in the ointment of humanism ever since. All you got to do is ask someone who knows something about humanism, and that's what they're going to tell you. Number one, a failure to complexly consider, consider the question of theism. And two, a tendency toward conceptualizing, living in your head, in other words, rather than embodying a humanist life. But there it is, exactly as one of the readings this morning makes clear. The quote, the main takeaway from this study is that people who are motivated to pursue religion or spirituality and integrate it fully into their life while finding it contributing to what they experience tend to think in more meaningful ways. And yeah, I think that's good for you. And that's what I want to try to think about today. Now, let's consider two broad approaches to living a mortal life. As with all simplifications, it is a simplification, but I, I want to think about this as a way of clarifying my own thinking, and I hope yours as well. New York Times columnist David Brooks, uh, many of you know that I'm, I'm a fan of his um, because he started out as a, uh, as a Buckley Republican and is now slipping increasingly towards some kind of middle-of-the-road Republican, sort of, you know, something that he says doesn't exist anymore. So it's kind of fun to watch him wrestle with this kind of thing. But it, last week he wrote an article called How Democrats Can Win the Morality Wars. And now he didn't mean Democrats winning the morality wars, right, uh, because he doesn't think that's a good idea exactly, but he does say some very good things. He says this, for example, politics is a competition between partial truths. And I think all of us probably ought to write that on the inside of our skulls. 
Politics is a competition between partial truths. Now, I would say that that's the essence of both true political conservatism, which we don't see much anymore, and true political liberalism, which is also kind of on the ropes these days. Brooks frames up the current U.S. situation as a clash of what he terms moral traditions. One is the progressive moral tradition that values individual freedoms, what Brooks describes as moral freedom ethos, the moral freedom ethos. And the other one that he terms, you are not your own ethos, the you are not your own ethos. Brooks writes this, the fact is the culture wars are not a struggle between the enlightened few and the ignorant and bigoted masses. They are a tension between two legitimate moral traditions. Democrats will never prevail on social issues unless they understand the nature of the struggle. The moral freedom ethos and the you are not your own ethos. Having been born into one of those, I think that that Brooks is correct. I was raised in the you are not your own ethos. It's the default mode of poor people in Appalachia and the Ozarks. All my family, in other words. Fact is, I was raised to believe that nothing, and I really mean, people don't understand this often, I really mean nothing is more important than the state of your own soul. Not your family. Jesus says, forget about the family, right? So, that, so Jesus says it right, right? Not family, not a job. Nothing is more important than the state of your soul. You are not your own. All right. Now, not understanding this foundational fact is why many liberals will ask, why do poor people vote against their own self-interest? The answer is actually very simple. They don't think they are. <laughs> They don't think they are, because the number one item in the self-interest is the state of their souls. Their religion is their number one priority. Going to heaven matters more than American politics. The historical oddity is that in the early 20th century, the charismatic movement spread like wildfire among poor and oppressed people in the Appalachians and the Ozarks, but soon enough spread among the poor and oppressed all around the nation and then all around the world with the Pentecostal, apostolic, charismatic, and evangelical movements. No, they're not all the same, but they all have a common root. And even odder, now that movement has entered into other socioeconomic groups. It was just the poor but, and just Southerners, basically, but now it's kind of everywhere. Among my people, anyway, this tradition also adopted the idea of inerrancy in Scripture. The doctrine essentially had to arise in that movement because Scripture's all you got. The ministers are not in any way educated, the, the congregations are not educated, so what are you going to do? You have one basis, and that is the Bible, and it's right. Uh, it's the way you do your church. It's the way you do your life. This is a movement that no, has no center and no hierarchy, and that's one of the reasons I think it spread so quickly. And so we secular Americans don't always see how this permeates the thinking. The center of their thinking is the Bible, and it's all totally 100% correct. And the hierarchy is not God, Jesus, Pope, or God, Jesus, Minister. It is God, Jesus, you, right? And so it's up to you. 
Now, among American Protestants, this is today the you are not your own ethos. And it's also entered into Roman Catholicism to some extent. Nowadays, we have cafeteria Catholics who are not talking to the Pope, they're talking to God, right? I have been describing my own personal experience here, but a lot of Americans fall into this you are not your own category. It's not only the poor and the uneducated, like my people, a lot of Americans are convinced that there is a higher power that requires obedience to a list of pieties. And they can list them, believe me. And the fact is that most of those pieties unfortunately embrace conservative social structures, traditional values as we call them nowadays. And when you take a closer look, one of the amazing things about the gods, I've said this before, one of the amazing things about any god is that they always wish for exactly the pre-existing prejudices of the social group who believe in them. I've never, ever, have you heard a person say, I know God wants me to blank, but I'm going to blank. No. God wants me to hate, therefore I'm going to hate. Whatever. It's not surprising, one of the oldest functions of human religion has to do with enforcing social norms. It did that for a long time. Now, let's take a look at the mainline traditions, the people across the street. We've got the United Methodists, we've got the Presbyterians, we've got uh, United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, other Unitarian Universalists, and then humanists. These are the folks who subscribe to what David Brooks calls the moral freedom ethos. The moral freedom ethos. We believe in the primacy of individual conscience. The primacy of individual conscience. That's why we don't like creeds. We believe in diversity, in multi-religious, multicultural freedom. We love diversity. We believe that traditionally marginalized groups should be listened to and valued from their own understandings of themselves, not from our understandings, right? They have their freedom of conscience and we have ours. That is the basis of, of the way we think. We see it as wrong to impose our own morality on others. And we seek to understand human beliefs and emotions that we ourselves do not understand because of our cultural location. I'll read a book about blank because I want to know more about the way that group of people think, right? Lifestyle choices, individual expressions of self and sexuality, and the list goes on and on. We believe in a true self, and we believe that you should be looking for your true self, right? Instead of a God of law and judgment, right? Those of us who believe in moral freedom, right, believe in a God of love and mercy, right? Judgment mercy. Two very different gods, if you stop to think about it. You are not your own ethos. Americans feel that we moral freedom ethos folks are making up our own rules and doing whatever we like. And that's a little hard to say we don't sometimes. We feel that those of the you are not your own ethos are restricting the choices of others with their narrow-minded interpretations of musty old restrictive religious traditions. Yes, I do think that, right? We say we don't have a free society if diversity of views is not honored. We believe that deeply. We must have diversity of views if we're going to have social freedom. 
They say we don't have a just and godly society without restraints on individual freedom, which freedom they would call human vanity. Human vanity, right? The situation with the U.S. Supreme Court, <clears throat> the majority believe in the you-are-not-your-own ethos. They see themselves as imposing godly discipline on a corrupt nation that has fallen away from God. That's the impasse that we find ourselves in. So, how are we going to be sages napping in our hammocks in this short, sublet summer when racism, gun violence, a woman's right to choose, and so many other civil liberties must be fought for if we are to live into our principles. Well, because we all know that liberal democracy has a secret, don't we? Because that's what Active Voices is doing, that's what you Ewing the Vote is going to do. We believe that democracy is a mechanism, a mechanism that's hidden in plain sight. Freedom is always there, we think, to be searched, to be found, to be won, and the secret to operating the mechanism is hiding also in plain sight, that is conviction to a purpose. We go out and change minds and, and get the votes. Times such as these ask us to examine, embrace, and proclaim our values. If you believe it, say it, integrate it. Integrate those values into the way that we live our day-to-day lives. Our foundational conviction that every person has inherent worth and dignity is a message to be communicated. It is a voice of hope in the world we live in. Every person has inherent worth and dignity. Our insistence that people matter more than ideas and matter more than ideologies needs to be heard by those who would incite violence for ideological gain that goes all the way from conspiracy theories uh, to dictators. Most of all, as we enjoy our too short Minnesota summer, let's radiate that love and peace and justice in our distressed world. We believe in it. Yes, the world is getting distressed and distressing, but let's still communicate those as we live into those integrations of values. And let's remember the Taoist claim, and I think it's true. Remember it next time you're in your hammock. Sages fall asleep, not because they ought to, nor even because they want to, but simply because they are sleepy. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org. Thank you.